Welcome, everyone. This is Scott Shepard, and I am the host and founder of the Cities First podcast. And the Cities First podcast, we are really excited to have Ryan Russo here to kick off our second season of the podcast. Uh, so this is, I think, our sixth episode, and uh, we're just kicking off uh, 2023 right with a real kind of innovator and um, thought leader at the uh, municipal as well as public sector level in active transportation, all matters related to urbanism. So thank you, Ryan, for joining us. Uh, we're really pleased to have you here today. And it's, it's great to be on, Scott. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate it. Thanks. So I just want to give everyone a bit of a bio on uh, Ryan and kind of his importance in the uh, ecosystem and the sector. And then we'll just kind of get started with our usual round of questions and discussions. So Ryan Russo is principal of Together Projects, LLC. Widely recognized as an urban innovator, Ryan's most recently served as the first director of the OCDOT, Oakland Department of Transportation in Northern California, where he led the new agency through its inaugural five years of operation. Under Ryan's leadership, OCDOT quickly became a national model for incorporating equity into transportation planning, policy, programs, and operations. Previously, Ryan spent nearly 14 groundbreaking years at the New York City Department of Transportation, ultimately rising to the position of deputy commissioner and serving as an instrumental leader in the transformation of NYC DOT from a focus on just moving cars and trucks to meeting the needs of residents, businesses, and visitors. So real imp impressive profile, impressive resume um, at the um, public sector, both coasts, and really kind of delivering value in terms of this transfer, uh, transformation of the uh, mobility sector. So once again, thanks, uh, Ryan, for joining. And I think uh, we're just going to kind of kick it off right now. So I, I think as um, our audience and our building uh, following of the City's First podcast knows, we kind of go through a series of four or five questions, uh, and we have a real nice conversation and it gives our audience uh, some areas for further exploration. So we're going to start right here with our first question, Ryan. So right. um, basically, I'd like to ask you uh, just kind of at a very high level, and we're talking about Oakland and New York City now, what mobility lessons have you in your position learned from Oakland and New York that can be applied on an international scale specific to your role and what you've seen in the industry, let's say, over the last uh, 15, 16 years? Yeah, um, love that question. And I might take it in a little bit of a direction uh, that might not be obvious, but some, some things are obvious, but first of all, um, I've had the great benefit to, to work on cutting edge projects, doing a lot of first from the first parking protected bike lane to the first equity driven DOT. And the number one ingredient that cities around, uh, need and were, were needed is strong leadership, um, uh, a lot of the leadership occurred in New York City under Mayor Michael Bloomberg and DOT Commissioner Jeanette Sadakan. And that leadership really is sort of a word that doesn't get defined uh, a, a ton, but it's really the willingness to take risks and to do to be first in something. And so a lot of these things that we need cities to do, um, uh, you know, it'll be new in your city and there'll be there might be, you know, legal concerns, risk concerns. And that leadership is totally uh, necessary, uh, a necessary but not sufficient ingredient. Um, the next is uh, uh, strong staff. Um, we we want to solve big problems and have big problems, but we don't often talk enough about how 
um, you know, government needs great people to do that great work if we want transformational uh, action to take place. And especially nowadays with um, this sort of a recruitment and retention crisis in transit agencies and DOTs and government and even the private sector. So um, we need to be thinking even more about recruiting and retaining uh, the, the experts that are needed to do, to do the work. Um, and then lastly, uh, strong advocacy. I think in both uh, the context I worked for a long time, um, you know, communities and nonprofit organizations advocating for these pro-urban, pro-public space, pro-sustainable transportation modes are really uh, a, a necessary ingredient to, to, to move that forward. And then lastly, I would sort of say the lessons that, you know, New York City, city of eight and a half million people, you know, incredible density and vibrancy. Oakland is, you know, lower density, 440,000 people, but both cities, uh, it was obvious that there is a large demand for the connection that you can get uh, in public space, uh, wanting to support small businesses, wanting streets to not just be about moving cars from A to B. So it's all about the right ingredients. So these kind of four factors, um, there's some similarities and differences between Oakland and New York. Obviously the scale is completely different, but uh, some of the commonalities, these themes really uh, strengthen um, the value of taking a mobility versus a auto-centric approach and this kind of paradigm shift that we're talking about. And uh, this convergence that's really scaling across the United States right now in North America, albeit with its constraints certainly related to staffing and shortages, which are persisting or continuing. Mm -hmm. um, but again, um, building upon some of the energy that was seen uh, during and post COVID related to tactical urbanism and uh, local based community uh, efforts to really kind of take back control of uh, streets and design, um, you know, uh, projects in the built environment uh, with th their own needs at heart. Um, I think that it seems to me like that um, we're um, noticing a, a consistent, let's say, direction towards uh, many other uh, agencies uh, taking this approach. So I, 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 remain, I remain quite hopeful that um, some of the work that you've done um, in New York and Oakland uh, will, will continue with many other uh, agencies as well, too. So and thanks for sharing those perspectives. That's that's really uh, great for us to kind of continue with our discussion here. So. And I talked about COVID, so let's uh, kind of use that as a segue into the, the next topic here, which is, because this is front and center related to active transportation, related to urban design, and related to the role of the public sector. So I want to mm -hmm. get your perspective as a uh, civil servant or your former role as a civil servant in basically this question here, which is, and you can help define what I mean by this question. Sure. And, uh, what this is, is basically how has COVID changed the power dynamics in urban and transportation plan? Yeah, um, I think, you know, the we, we had just not, not just the pandemic. There was, of course, also the murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning around structural racism in the United States and the call for a more equitable approach to transportation. And sort of those two things um uh, you know, what we had was a real need for government to be proactive, as Oakland was around slow streets, which then inspired cities around the country to be more aggressive around providing space for social distancing. We did then have also the, the reaction of folks concerned about, um, 
moving too fast and, 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 and process and, um, uh, uh, concerns about, uh, you know, the, the rapid pace of change. Um, and I sort of have a couple ideas around there, a couple thoughts in that, you know, I think the need to have meaningful engagement with the communities that we serve is absolutely there, but it does not mean you do nothing. Like, and unfortunately, in many cases, the, the public engagement process has become just sort of a, a shorthand to kind of stop any change from happening. And yeah. we have so many crises. It's so obvious that change is needed um, from, you know, over 40,000 deaths a year from the surface transportation system, uh, rising number of pedestrian and cyclist fatalities to, of course, you know, the climate, the uh, growing uh, just clear set of climate catastrophes that continue to happen and the transportation sector being such a key part of that. So we need action and engagement doesn't mean do nothing. Um, and unfortunately it's been, been warped in many ways. I thought that, uh, Aaron Gordon's article and vice around community engagement, I mm -hmm. suggest yeah, your, your listeners, uh, take a read through on that. I thought that got a lot of things right about what's, uh, happened to the engagement process. But, you know, I think, you know, as an urban planner, so many folks in our profession were just really committed that that we're not just the experts who get to do, choose what's right and just do it in steamroll communities. And so, so how do we have that meaningful engagement to shape our projects and shape our initiatives? And I think going back to the equity piece, um, I think what we're seeing more cities do in Oakland, you know, as a real leader here is that, you know, really equitable engagement is super necessary and it's not actually necessarily equal. Equitable is not the same oh, as equal. Yes. And um, <laughs> people often want things to be equal and think engagement in particular, that if you're going to have, um, and I'll just explain, you know, why this is so important. There are the, the urban neighborhoods that feel uh, that were so impacted by so many structurally racist policies from redlining to the building of the interstate system, to the urban renewal plans and programs, um, you know, shock, shocker here, they don't have trust in government. And we can't solve these big problems if we don't develop the, that trust. And so equitable engagement recognizes and names that history and then engages with those communities in a targeted way in which they're real, um, you know, partners in power to shape the actions that government is going to take, not to prevent government from taking action, but to but to shape them. But that also means government's not going to have the resources to have those deep, long, meaningful conversations with both these neighborhoods that have been, um, you know, subject to these inequities and have these inequitable outcomes, and the privileged neighborhoods as well. So, you know, my best example is the bike plan we developed in Oakland, where. Um, those neighborhoods, community-based organizations were our partners in shaping the plan, but they were in specific targeted neighborhoods. And to cover the whole city, we used a, um, you know, representative scientific sampled survey to get input and assessment from the entire city. And so we weren't equal throughout the city, but we had a very equitable approach. And I think more and more we need and are seeing governments sort of recognize, um, that this equitable approach is really what's necessary. And, you know, there's so much great work happening around uh, equity coming out of the USDOT that's really sort of bending the practice in that direction. 
So in some ways, perhaps uh, with the George Floyd protests, as well as with COVID, we've seen a reform in the community engagement process, such that essentially um, what was maybe uh, pre-2019, where it became a bit beholden to nimbiest interests, an interest that would maybe, uh, let's say, uh, kind of... Um, uh, conflate uh, environmental concerns, certainly in California with CEQA and other areas to uh, block meaningful uh, progress, meaningful projects to an area um, where that now we we're striking a bit more of a, a balance between uh, building trust, uh, active uh, outreach and engagement where it matters, um, equity-based, not, not fully, uh, but it's, it's not um, across the entire population, and then also uh, taking an approach where that we're um, preventing maybe the top-down um, uh, urban planning tradition where many uh, community groups are so fearful of, such as a la Robert Moses, and maybe uh, striking that balance between more of the Jane Jacobs approach. So it seems like a lot of these things are starting to kind of settle down, and we're, we're coming up with some really interesting um, you know, lessons learned that... Um, local municipal city DOTs with the support of the US DOT, like you just mentioned, can um, start uh, delivering uh, projects that uh, add value uh, for all citizens. Absolutely. Yeah, good, good. Okay, so let's kind of uh, move on to our next question, which is, so, and I think we hit upon this. Uh, so we talked about um, uh, equity, we talked about, uh, COVID, uh, community outreach, um, and lessons learned, but some more specific concrete examples and something that um, you uh, you yourself have been a real leader in, which is around slow streets. So, and I'd like to maybe talk to you about uh, some examples of this. So uh, the question for you is, can slow streets be scaled as a permanent fixture of the built environment? And I'd like to get from you maybe some concrete examples of some cities Maybe not cities that are reverting back to um, the pre-slow streets movement, but some examples of cities that are looking to really scale this for a, uh, a permanent part of their infrastructure and what you think is kind of the path forward for that. Yeah, um, I think, you know, slow streets were tremendous in kind of breaking a really important seal, which is that. Uh, I think cities did not necessarily believe that you could have partially open streets with children, dog walkers in the roadbed, and then the recycling truck could come down the street and collect the trash or the local traffic could make a, a delivery or someone could drive to their home or, around a barricade. And breaking that seal was really important. Um, you know, and, um, and and you saw cities sort of take advantage of it. In terms of kind of going forward, I think what we saw is a lot of cities, there was a, the maintenance burden of these temporary lightweight barricades, which would get moved around or get destroyed, need to be replaced. Um, that ultimately that's not a sustainable way of keeping things, but what, um, uh, what you're seeing is sort of this convergence from this very kind of put down a barricade overnight kind of thing. And some of the practices that were in street design around bike boulevards, neighborhood greenways, 
um, shared streets, yeah. um, you know, just full closure, open streets, if you will. Um, and you're seeing kind of this conversion of slow streets to kind of maturing, yeah. but, but improving the practices that were sort of being developed around bike boulevards and neighborhood greenways. And, um, you know, there's a number of reasons why we can expect this, this to, um, improve one is uh, family mobility and school mobility i think for um you know in certain sort of commercial context protected bike lanes are, are fantastic but like biking as a family which we're seeing a lot more interested in especially with electric assists family and cargo bikes um you want to be able to ride kind of take up the whole street have that full kind of bike boulevard calm movement and what you see in new york city now is a growth in what's called school streets, you know, closing streets, you know, near schools to give families that, uh, you know, just calming the traffic around schools, rationalizing the drop off, but also giving that option for, um, you know, families to kind of bike in the road. And then there's, um, you know, and you also, you know, if you follow on Twitter, there's the growing kind of school bike bus movement. Uh, which I, I am, think, I'm a follower could, of that. <laughs> yeah, which can really, I think, help catalyze these kinds of treatments that sort of build off kind of the slow street initiative. And then on the other side is that sort of the commercial side, sort of, I think what the pandemic really did was convince so many small business owners on those pedestrian oriented retail restaurant districts that public space is just a tremendous opportunity as, as, as Jeanette Sadekhan says, hiding in plain sight. So um, whether that's, you know, dining sheds or, um, you know, weekend closures or full closures for true kind of pedestrian streets on commercial districts, um, that's kind of the, the, the evolution. And, and I think what we've, the door that's been opened, um, you know, I think there is a caution related to slow streets in that there was an element that we kind of, sort of saw in some cities of like, you know, I guess everyone wants to live in a street where nobody drives through traffic, right? And there was sort of an element of almost replicating the cul-de-sac and, um, you know, keeping people out and conflicts around, you know, you're not allowed here. So people wanting to slow street as a way to sort of, yeah. to yeah. be exclusionary yeah, as opposed to be slippery slope yeah. inclusionary. So I think mm -hmm. cities have had to be careful um, around, around that aspect. And especially... And again, cities are going to have their different contexts. You know, Oakland's a much lower density place mm -hmm. than than New York City. So you have to be kind of tailored to your particular condition. Yeah, American cities, to, getting back to exclusionary, uh, especially our, our suburbs, you know, even before the First World War have such a a, a negative legacy of uh, exclusionary zoning and real estate and building practices and you know, just the, our street networks have been designed intentionally for that. So it, it's very easy for us to kind of slip down that path. And we have to be very cautious about that. But the commercial side speaks for itself in terms of economic development, footfall, footfall tax receipts, et cetera. The numbers speak for themselves in terms of pedestrian activity and cycling activity for commercial re retail for yeah. low streets and you know, uh, car-free city centers and all that stuff here in Europe. I mean, I was just in Brussels last week and just, yeah, it just reminds me over and over again in terms of it's the largest pedestrian zone in all of Europe and the amount of activity and just the amount of commercial activity there, given yeah. the absence of automobiles is just, is, uh, is, is eye-opening. But, um, 
you, you spoke to a couple of points in terms of uh, we kind of morph from slow streets to school streets. Um, hopefully that those are going to become um, more permanent, which is good. I think another thought that comes to mind is um, uh, kind of, well, obviously I follow him as well, Mr. Barric Barricade in San Jose and talking about the quick build programs mm -hmm. and how quick build can be leveraged for more permanent infrastructure too related to slow streets. So I I'm a real um, kind of proponent of that from a civil design and civil engineering perspective too. And I think that leveraging those uh, practices for um, local DOTs can help kind of uh, reduce the barriers for kind of um, this, let's say, institutional fraternity amongst mm -hmm. uh, transportation professionals, shall we say, that are have been uh, uh, fixated on uh, autocentricity. Um, certainly with state DOTs in the United States, maybe not so much yeah. local DOTs, but state DOTs. I'm not going to list the states, but we'll say all 50 state DOTs share the same philosophy, this worldview. And um, I think that this uh, fraternal organization of civil engineering that's autocentric um, hopefully is being challenged from a more inclusionary perspective of uh, multi-disciplines related to urban planning, related to uh, social equity, related to uh, mobility and other um, uh, disciplines, e even including psychology. And having these different types of disciplines that um, inform, um, you know, the, the transportation planning uh, profession, certainly uh, from a local perspective, can help uh, reinforce uh, these, uh, what be, what started as temporary, you know, emergency measures, slow streets into this permanent fixed uh, infrastructure. We're seeing it here in Europe, in Milan. We're seeing it here in Lisbon, where I'm based, and many European mm -hmm. cities, I certainly in the U.S. as well, too. And my hope, I'm sure, as well as yours, is to uh, kind of uh, move the needle forward, um, you know, in 2023 and beyond, because I think that's the opportunity here, really. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think we will kind of close it off with our next question and we'll kind of uh, follow up with some other topics. Um, so the next question I have for you is just, uh, and I kind of pose this question to most of our, our guests on the City's First podcast, but just specifically related to this topic is what are your predictions for active and shared transportation in the post-COVID city? And you can answer this however you like. This is free form. <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, so first, um, you know, we're just going to see the continued growth of electric assisted, you know, micromobility and, and, and how it just accesses a totally different um, kind of use case and uh, population um, here in New York. You know, uh, you know, urban cycling has a whiteness problem in general. It does. Um, and I think the uh, in affordable electric assist mobility is really deepening, uh, you know, the sort of market penetration, if you will, in communities of color. Um, it's just or making, democratic in a way you're saying that basically. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. I love yeah. And, and um, you know, the bike lanes here in Brooklyn are, um, you know, just filled with a different kind of people than they were five years ago. And wonderful. Um, and, and I think the, and now we see cities kind of recognizing that cost is still a barrier to entry, particularly for family bikes, for cargo bikes. They're not cheap. Um, They're not cheap. And uh, so more and more of the sort of funding around sustainable transportation or electrification 
recognizing that these massive, you know, uh, tax breaks or rebates for electric automobiles, really, it's to only be fair, it should also include smaller vehicles, which could prevent owning a car in the first place. So I think we're really going to see an acceleration and uptick of, you know, supportive policies to improve access, both on the private sectors, we're going to be responding. I think mm. there's a lot of competition like, like my in the country. Like yeah. Grover, we're, we're on the light electric vehicles, not to plug, but we're, we're definitely yeah. uh, f- fixated in the space. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, on the government side, I think we're just going to see a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of creative policy making around supporting um, that kind of mobility. Sort of a second um, trend uh, in terms of one of the, probably the largest barrier to, to uptake of active transportation or using micromobility is, you know, the threat from the two to 10,000 pound vehicles that are on dominating the streets. Um, And we've of course had, uh, you know, real setbacks in the vision zero movement with kind of the COVID post COVID reckless driving that's happening. um, The continued enlargement of the vehicles themselves, pedestrians and cyclists being, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fatality rates going up. And so I really think, you know, we're starting to see some real momentum around vehicles being mandated to respect vulnerable users, that all of this technology around sensors and LIDAR and automatic braking and sensing can really be deployed uh, to protect pedestrians and cyclists. There's really no reason it couldn't. And, you know, real talk around kind of speed governors, if you will, that like, we actually, you know, started to come up with this for the scooters first, like, oh, if you're in a, a no-go zone, the scooter slows down and the scooter yeah. shuts down and like, what about oh, no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The double and standard, think, of course, we all know this. Double standard, but I think it's, it's finally, <laughs> you know, starting to break, you know, first more in Europe, but really, you know, uh-huh. I think we have high hopes for the USDOT um, here. So I think that's a second thing we'll be, we'll be developing. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, um, I think it's the the transportation sector has to link itself much more closely to the housing crisis in uh, the United States. Um, the lack of housing production, the high affordability, just heard a story on the radio this morning about um, the proportion of um, U.S. residents spending more than 30% of their income on housing is like, more than half now it's it's really um and that ultimately you know you can trace back a lot of this um housing unaffordability to um the dependence on the single occupant vehicle uh, because of the room the space consumption that it has because of traffic the traffic accumulation privileged communities don't want to see new housing built um you know, even cities struggle with adding adding density because of the fear of traffic congestion. So if we, the transportation profession is all about moving people around and getting what they need um, so that we can build, build that housing. And so I think we're going to see more of a conversion of the movements around sort of sustainable mobility and uh, affordable housing. We need to be kind of allies and working together on this. So that, that I'm, you're starting to see more of, and I think we're going to see see that even further in the year, year, year or two to come. Well, let's also hope that um, kind of the uh, 
the strengthening or at least the maintenance of public transit uh, in the U.S. is also um, given uh, just uh, consideration in this uh, you know, conversation as well, too, in terms of just housing and uh, this move towards shared and active transportation, uh, because obviously we have some kind of existential problems in that in that sphere too, in terms of driver shortages, in terms of uh, budget and funding shortfalls. Oh yeah. In terms of maintenance backlogs, um, you know, obviously what just happened in Boston recently, in many other cities, um, and yeah, just, the, the the funding cliff from the American Rescue Plan is a serious thing facing public mm-hmm. transit agencies. It, it sends shivers down my spine, and also what I'm fearful of too is this over-privatization of the public transit sector in the U.S. and over-reliance on, and I'll be very honest with you here, and some of the viewers may or may not agree with me, but I'm not going to name any companies, but this over-reliance on moving towards uh, transit technologies that are seen as a panacea to kind of save our transit systems and move away from fixed route towards Mm -hmm. just a fully on-demand or um, here in Europe, we call it DRT. In the U.S., we call it microtransit. And I, mm-hmm. I'm fearful that many, let's say, suburban or lower density communities in the U.S. are basically um, uh, putting all their eggs yeah. in one basket and and shifting their uh, operational funding towards these um, kind of uh, silver bullet solutions without thinking through the fiscal or budgetary kind of um, considerations. Yeah. And th- this is another fundamental layer to this entire kind of conversation in terms of what you were mentioning and what will kind of dictate the outcome of the post-COVID city in the United States, basically. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, I hope that I'm proven wrong and things will work out, but if I keep seeing more, um, you know, bus uh, lines being, um, you know, shut down and moved towards on demand or basically marginalized, then, I, I think we're headed in a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, interesting direction that we need to really reconsider. So, but anyway, maybe we'll try to end things off on a positive note here. So <laughs> I'll just open up for a few moments here. And if you want to just uh, give the audience um, some ideas on closing thoughts and where you think the um, active transportation um, kind of realm is going to be headed in the next yeah. 24 to 36 months. Sure. Well, I would say, you know, one thing we need to do more of, and I'm proud to have worked at a couple of places that I think got this is to transportation is like a big unit. It's a universe and so many subcategories of the universe and planet, solar systems and and things that you can get kind of lost in it and, and forget that transportation is not an end in and of itself. Like, why do we move around? We move to access the things we need to gather, to to get to jobs, to get to school, to get to services. And um, we're really in service to communities and we really have no purpose in and of ourselves. And we need to really recognize that. And, but it's also just an incredibly powerful thing to serve the values of communities at all scales, you know, from starting with, you know, are you, do you have a street that allows you to connect with your neighbors and with your small local businesses to the scale of, you know, the the planetary community with yeah. transportation being, you know, the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and the need to have a sustainable climate friendly transportation system. 
and 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 everything in between. So, um, you know, I think I try to always, um, you know, remind myself and and audiences that we're sort of it's we're not just moving for any, for 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 just for the purpose of moving itself. Um, we're we're serving another end, and uh, you know, I think if we keep that in mind, we look at the problems that our communities are facing again, like the housing crisis. Like we need to be saying, what am I doing to help with the housing crisis or the climate crisis? What is what is what I'm working on? How does it help and make that connection? Um, and uh, yeah, I think if we do that, we can really start to make some progress on some of these, you know, seemingly insurmountable challenges. Yeah, it's really that, uh, and thank you for sharing that. It's really this shift from being uh, much more of a uh, bureaucratic entity that is uh, kind of uh, either self-serving or serving just for the needs of single modality of moving automobiles as fast as possible mm -hmm. to really uh, considering the complexities of uh, cities as uh, living uh, organisms and really all the complexities that... Uh, mobility can um, layer in to actually solve um, real world uh, challenges and problems in our communities. Um, certainly at the uh, local and municipal level, I have uh, much hope and I've seen based upon your work and many other leaders at uh, city DOT levels that this paradigm shift is moving forward and this community driven approach is starting to uh, bear fruit. I'm a bit less hopeful at the state level. The state DOTs still have some work to do, quite honestly. Again, I'm not going to name the states, but I feel like uh, they, they still have that kind of institutional approach that uh, needs um, a bit more reform. But uh, let's see how things uh, evolve over the, the coming months and years. Uh, but, you know, time will tell. Time will tell. Um, but uh, again, I, I fully, fully share your uh, perspective here. So I think we're just going to kind of uh, wrap things up, Ryan. Um but maybe if you can give the uh, audience um, some information on where we can all find you, you know, in social media channels, et cetera, and where we can connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. Again, thanks a lot for having me, Scott. Um, Pleasure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Together Ryan for, for Together Projects and uh, pretty active there, but in particular on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to find me on LinkedIn. Always looking to connect with folks. Um, really enjoying, you know, after 19 years in local government, now I'm getting to get involved in, you know, projects around the country um, and, uh, and, and, and initiatives. And so really enjoying getting involved in, in different kinds of things, uh, but all with the vision of making our mobility system in our cities, you know, more equitable, more sustainable, and more safe for folks and more affordable. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, Find me and let's collaborate and conspire to to do some do some good things. Very good. I I might be reaching out to you for some collaborations, and we hope to see some of your work here in Europe in the coming uh, months and years ahead. But uh, thank you so much, Ryan, for your time. It's been a real pleasure, and thank you everyone for joining uh, this uh, first episode of the second season of the City's First Podcast. Uh, again, uh, we're really excited to have Ryan Russo here today, and. Um, we will join you all for our next episode in February. So thanks a lot, Ryan. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Thank you.